have tuned into WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. I am your host, Bumia Kinisotu, and this is What in the World. It's been a while, I know. Um, this is the third season. We took a break to just gather ourselves to do some adulting, but I'm so glad to be back. I'm so glad that you're listening here with me and that you're here just to listen to an amazing expert on all the wonderful experts on this show for it is the early part of 2019. So much has been going on, not just in the world globally, but here in the United States from the shutdown to people announcing their bid for the presidential election coming up next year. And of course, as I bet everybody knows, the new Congress, the 116th Congress, has just descended upon D.C. If you live in the area, you know that there's been a lot of parties, there's a lot of events, panel discussions. Um, It's an exciting time to be in Washington. So what I thought I would do is to segment a couple of episodes to just talk about what is the role of Congress in foreign policy to the best that we can. There are classes on this, the people get entire degrees on this, and there's no way we can cover everything in the time that we have. But I've picked an amazing guest to just walk us through the schoolhouse rock version. (laughs) (laughs) If anybody knows, hopefully, I think my listeners are old enough to know the schoolhouse rock. So if you don't check YouTube, I'm just a bill. We're going to have that level. Brian explained to us that level of understanding of Congress and particularly the role that they play with foreign policy. And what I'm really excited about is we get to talk to Brian about his career and use his career sort of as a lens to understand the role of Congress, which I think often is forgotten. Um, If you've ever been to the Hill, if you've called the Hill, if you've watched C-SPAN and you see the person who's passing the note to the person who's, you know, speaking behind the bench or usually that's some staffer who's doing the grunt work of the research, of taking phone calls, of interviewing people, of setting up meetings and all just the difficult work. They're actually humans, human people with like life stories and passions like Brian who care about this work. And so through Brian's experience, we're going to understand what exactly the role of Congress is. And so Brian, as I mentioned, is a professional staffer on the Hill. So he specifically serves on the House Armed Services Committee, which is the committee that has oversight of our military. Right, Brian? That's correct. It's a big deal. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big deal. It's a big deal. (laughs) Brian has come through the ranks of Congress, having worked both on the House and the Senate side. He's worked also for the Department of Defense. Brian is our defense guy, our military guy. He knows about those areas and also issues related to energy and just foreign policy in general. Brian, welcome to What in the World. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Brian, how did you get here? What was your career path? So it's actually a little, I really like this one Thomas Jefferson quote where it's, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Mm. And so I went to University of Virginia for undergraduate study. And so my undergrad in international affairs. And between the summer of my third and fourth year, we made a trek up to Washington, D.C. And at that time, my sister lived in the area. So we stayed with her. We went downtown and we looked at the, the museums and the statues and we saw like young people like going to happy hour and yeah, like working yeah. on the hill and it looked exciting. And I was always like, how do I get a job? working on the hill. Going a happy hour. Exactly. (laughs) So I went back to school. I think it was my last year. And I was like, okay, first of all, I need to make sure I get my GPA where it needs to be so I can apply to any sort of situation or any sort of job. And then just start networking. I had some friends a year ahead of me in undergrad that had applied and were working on the hill. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, I would love to intern on the hill. How do I get a job on the hill? What do I need to do now as going into my fourth year to prepare me? And one of my mentors was like, well, just make sure you do really well in your fourth year. Make sure your GPA is where it needs to be. Right. Get some sort of campaign or political experience yeah. in addition to your class to be able to point to that. Come up to Washington, D.C., meet with different offices and volunteer your time. <laughs> oh, the infamous V word. Right. Volunteer. And, you know, <laughs> I think this was what I was probably 22 at the time coming okay. out of undergraduate. And I was like, volunteer my time. Like, I... <laughs> who's going to pay my bills type thing. And I need to eat. I eat a lot of food. Um, So I just kind of knew that I was like, okay, volunteer. How am I going to make this work? Yeah. So eventually I kept my eyes on that. Not the USA jobs of the hill, but it was kind of like this listserv that would send out emails. Yeah. And I actually started my first job out of college was working at the World Bank visa office. Okay. In Washington, D.C. So that's the they did visa processing for consultants coming in out of the World Bank. And while I was in that job, I still wanted to figure out how do I get to the Hill? Because I kind of knew that was, it just seemed interesting and intriguing. And so while I was working at the World Bank Visa Office, I was lifeguarding at the YMCA at the same time. And wow. I was 
you know, I tried to stay in shape. And one day, <laughs> one day on the basketball court, I met a gentleman who um, worked on the Hill. And we, you know, after the basketball game was over, I was like, I always wanted to work on the Hill, you know, I always interested in it. He's like, I work on the Hill. Here's my email. Just shoot me an email and I'll send you the job lists. And I was like, okay, yeah, right. Like, I'll never hear from this guy. So I shot him an email. I was like, hey, man, nice to meet you on the basketball courts. Thanks for taking us to school and showing us how to really play. You know, I'd love to be able to work on the Hill one day. Feel free to send me whatever. And so he started sending me emails. He was like, yeah, good game. No worries. I'll see you next week. Here's a list of emails and positions that are available on the Hill. And one of those positions happened to be, they were looking for a front office person. Oh. So to be a staff assistant for uh. Cong Congressman David Scott from Georgia. And, you know, I was right out of school and I was like, okay, you know, let's see what this offers. So I went in and I'm from Georgia originally. I should have pointed that out right. earlier. I went in, met with, I think it was the legislative director at the time, and then interviewed with the chief of staff. And then interviewed with the congressman, and I got my first job on the Hill, and this is March of 2006. Okay. And, you know, I was super excited. So the staff assistant role was everything front office related. So answering phones, opening mail as it came in, <laughs> giving tours to constituents when they came to Washington, uh, D.C., which I'll get to the importance so of that you, later. You, you, so some of our listeners probably have come across Brian at some <laughs> point many yeah. years ago if you stopped at this office. Exactly. So you learn the basics, right? So this is the Hill. But at the same time, the good thing about it is, you know, you get a historical lesson on what the capital is all about. Mm. You understand how to give a tour. You learn the ins and outs of the basics of a bill. You learn mm. the basics of legislative procedure. So mm -hmm. when the House is in session, how do they structure a bill and you, how does it debate? I read in your body, like you have written stuff. Yes. So there's <laughs> sections of bills that I write now. I've worked with members to draft the legislative text for them to kind of carry through the floor. But I've been like. One of the authors right there, along with members to right. kind of pass legislation. You mentioned that you're from Georgia. I'm always curious how parents try to like what their reaction is to their kids when they say they're going to go to D.C. and attempt to break into this monster mm -hmm. of a world called the Hill mm -hmm. or the World Bank or federal government. Because it's not like there's like this easy way to do it. Right. And it's not like there are like instructions. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so what were your parents' reaction? Or did they always know that you would sort of get into politics? The political sphere for me is I kind of have a history of being in leadership positions throughout my career. My mom says from kindergarten and from <laughs> from kindergarten, we knew you were like an organizer because you had everyone in the class on your team. <laughs> you put all the green crayons together and made other people yeah. check them. <laughs> so my mom's like, of course you're going to the Hill. I believe in you. You're going to be great. You know, my dad said something similar, a little bit different. You know, hey, make it a great opportunity. Work hard. I know mm -hmm. you will, but keep learning, keep driving. You know, he's the keep getting more practical skills, which yeah, is yeah, something yeah. that I've ingrained over the course of my career. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd say they were definitely behind me. You know, kind of a little bit intrigued, didn't, didn't know what it entailed. And I feel like sometimes now my mom just still doesn't really understand what I do. That's the common uh, response to a lot of folks who've been on this show. You know, my family doesn't really know exactly what I do. But it's difficult to explain, it's too. It's very difficult. That's but hopefully I can kind of. Yeah. They know you're doing out. good work. Right. And they know that I've been at it for a while. And, and I think they see like a. Like positive future. Of, for me, and your so. bills are paid. Right. That's true. That's true. <laughs> your bills are paid. So, thinking about foreign policy, like yeah. how specifically did you get to this world of foreign policy and defense? Because you, you know, staff assistance, like you said, that's a pretty entry level job. You could have gone the route of, you know, more domestic issues like labor mm -hmm. or education or whatever. But how did you get to the foreign policy defense track? I would say, first and foremost, I had a lot of good instructors when I was an undergraduate. My professors really inspired me, and okay. it was kind of an interesting, the international relations field is an interesting nexus between history and practical applications of policy. So that's something I really enjoyed. You know, a lot of times I think people can get caught up in what the history says, but I feel like I've become more of a practitioner over time. And we did in the past, but mm -hmm. I want to see how do we affect change in the future and mm -hmm. kind of correct our, our mistakes going forward. But I, I chose Congress because I always just wanted to learn more, and I found it intriguing to learn the defense piece, learn the foreign affairs piece. And I wanted to see more of the world throughout my career. And so whether that's on my own terms or whether it's from a professional perspective, I wanted to continue to grow. And I grew up playing chess with my dad a lot. So mm -hmm. you always try to think three or four steps ahead. So I would always find that person who was where I wanted to be mm. in two or three years and be like, what does their background look like? What's yeah. their bio look like? What did like? they do? Right. Yeah. You know, how do they get to where they want to be? How do I become a professional staff or how do I become an undersecretary? You know, what are the things that they did and how do I get there from my lowly staff assistant job? Right. So moved up pretty quickly, became a staff assistant for seven months, legislative correspondent for about a year, which means when you write your member of Congress, I work with the member to write you back. So ah. drafts presented to him, corrections, right. his final sign off in the end. And then after that, you know, I knew I wanted to do defense and foreign affairs issues. So I tried to look for fellowships and other ways that I could kind of add some more to my 
resume that right. would make me qualified to be an Cause analyst. Because you, you don't have like a military background. That's correct. Right? So, so you're coming into this world completely the opposite of many people that I know who are in this world. They have a military background or their family's military or something to that degree. Right. So you, it sounds like you've had to learn a lot about the military space on your own. That's correct. In order to sort of prove your worthiness yeah. in, in this world that's very, very competitive. Right. The way I would characterize it is uh, kind of like almost learning Latin. And my foreign language of choice in undergraduate and high school was kind of learning Latin. So speaking a different language that other people don't speak, that's not necessarily client or commonly used. So mm-hmm. that's similar to what the defense department is like. So people Absolutely. speak in different abbreviations, and acronyms, <laughs> and every service speaks very differently. So yeah. what I've kind of done over time is meeting with people, briefings, reading CRS reports. What's a CRS report? Oh, sorry, that's a good question. <laughs> Congressional Research Service is this is the think tank of Congress that will go out and do research on any sort of topic per Congress's um, request. So there's this very well-educated think tank with experts within the legislature, the U.S. Congress, that specifically just goes out and does research and reports back, and it can inform staff, members, leadership, and the wider public on public policy concerns right. and issue. And it's all public information. That's correct. So <laughs> one of the good things is, you know, it's kind of like this large database you can use to get educated. So mm-hmm. the way I thought about it was like, okay, yes, I don't have a military background, but I do want to do foreign affairs and defense. How do I get myself there? And so I went and looked at other, the whole bio thing. I went back and looked at other foreign policy leaders who hadn't served and figured out how do they get to where they are. Mm. And at a certain point, I knew not only am I going to need CRS reports, but I'm going to need either an advanced degree or have to join the reserves mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. get a little bit more credibility in the defense space. So yeah. That's why I went to the School of International Public Affairs and studied yep. international security policy to kind of give me that credential. And it even further helped me develop my national security credentials and learn mm-hmm. more about the Defense Department, everything from strategy to military planning to statistics, economics, yeah. um, special operations, low-intensity conflict, how the intel side of the government works. So, And you hear a lot from practitioners and teachers who have a PhD in these topics. So it kind of gives you more of a broader yet specific viewpoint on Mm -hmm. the international affairs region, so to speak. So I want to take a step back for a second as it's sort of related to your career and and also just Congress and how it works in general. So what would you say is a myth about the Hill or something that people just misunderstand about the Hill and, and, and how it operates? And how would you correct this, this myth? I would say everyone thinks D.C. is a swamp and that lobbyists come and go and they always influence policy and that members of Congress are characterized as being dishonest or not working very hard. I would say that's not true. There are a lot of members, I would say, more than a majority, probably almost members work hard. Yeah. You know? And so do their staff. <laughs> right. And staff work hard very a lot, too. So I think there's always this, you know, government doesn't do enough for the people or he's a government employee that's Good enough for government work, I think, is one of the phrases people say. But there are people who work hard, who are highly educated. And Mm -hmm. to get some of these positions that are senior or specialized is extremely competitive. Yeah. So I think there's that mischaracterization out there that your government officials aren't working as hard as they could. But I would say nine times out of the ten, they're working hard and we're pushing. My guess is this is a show where we have no allegiance to one party or the other. But I guess I would add to that that regardless of party, I know that, you know, there are people there who... Republican, Democrat, whatever, are working. Yeah, on both sides of the aisle. On both sides of the aisle, both sides of the aisle. And you have to be specialized to be able to really start to influence policy. Yeah, yeah. Whether that's congressional staff or members of Congress, you see the members of Congress who are more senior or more middle of the ranks or in order to continue to progress and Mm -hmm. get more senior, you have to be knowledgeable and effective in your issues. Yeah. And usually that's your committee assignments. So. And so let, let's go there and talk a, before we jump into the sort of the committee stuff specifically, sure. you know, what are some of the skill sets? You've mentioned a couple, but what sort of makes a really great staffer on the Hill and a sure. really crappy staffer on sure. the Hill? Sure. So I think, first of all, you got to be humble. You need to be patient and le- realize you're not going to rise to the top overnight. You have to be able to think on your feet. And I think one of the most important pieces is being able to communicate. So, and what do I mean by communicate? Not just write a memo, but then be able to take an extremely complicated issue, boil it down to a one and a half page memo and be able to explain that to a member of Congress very quickly because their bandwidth for 
just the pace of the hill can sometimes be difficult and fast paced. And so you have to be able to be able to explain those types of issues succinctly, clearly, um, whether that's giving an oral briefing or giving a written briefing. So your principals know where you're coming from. So I think being able to write really well, being able to write a one, one to one and a half page memo really well, which is something we did in graduate school. Yeah. And then being able to explain issues that are complicated. So boil down and boil up, I think, is yeah. one, one way to kind of think Interesting. about it. Interesting. And that's what we do on the show. Is right. It's a really complicated foreign policy. It's right. not something you can just sort of like jump into and be like, I know everything. Yeah. I mean, we can all sit down and read The Economist, but then, you know, shaping a debate or shaping a thought or explaining a complicated issue and yeah. why it's not necessarily in our country's self-interest to go about it that way is, yeah, yeah. is a whole different conversation. So. All right. Well, I've added a new segment to sure. the show. Um, a little pop quiz for each sure. guest. I'm like the Black Alex Trebek. I'm just going to ask you two quick questions. Sure. Um, and it's also an opportunity for our listeners to sort of get warmed up to the topic and really start to think about what this all this topic means. So my first question for you, Brian, hopefully you didn't look at my, I didn't. my notes. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Who was the longest serving chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs? It's, it's a multiple choice. Oh, wow. Uh, Make it easy for y'all. So the longest serving chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs. Was it A, Senator Joe Biden of Delaware, B, Senator James William Fulbright from Arkansas, or C, Senator Theodore F. Green from my home state of Rhode Island? Hmm. The longest serving chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs. Was it Uncle Joe? Was it Fulbright? Or was it T.F. Green? Whew, so you really test my knowledge here. Do, do, do. Uh, I'm going to go with Biden. Yeah. OK, Biden. close, but uh, not quite. Fulbright. It was Fulbright. Yeah, OK. So Fulbright, he served from 45, 1945 to 1974. Wow. It's a long time. It's a long time. Neither one of us were born when he was <laughs> done. So if his name sounds familiar to you, it's because at some point, Hopefully you've heard of the Fulbright Scholarship. Scholarships, mm-hmm. which Scholarship. encourages international relations and exchange and cultural diplomacy and all of those fun things. And of course, Senator T.F. Green is from my home state of Rhode Island, which I just kind of threw them in there just because nice. I thought it was great. So, yeah, it is great. <laughs> <laughs> um, all three, though, at some point served as chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs. So question two. You ready? Yeah. So what is the title given to an individual without needing Senate confirmation or approval and is selected by the president to negotiate with other countries? Mm. So who is the individual basically selected by the president without necessarily needing confirmation from the Senate who goes out to negotiate with other countries? Is it A, an ambassador, B, the national security advisor, or C, a special envoy? I think I'm going to go with C, special envoy. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. Go, Brian. Go, Brian. Yes. 50-50. <laughs> so the special envoy is appointed by the president, doesn't need the Congress to approve or Senate specifically to confirm him or her to go ahead and you know represent the United States. And usually the, the envoy can sometimes end up going to a country where maybe we don't have a diplomatic presence mm-hmm. or, you know, just some stuff going on and we mm-hmm. ain't got no embassy, whatever. So the special envoy plays that role. And of course, all ambassadors are Senate confirmed. Um, Absolutely. Every single one is Senate confirmed, appointed by the president, but they can't go if the Senate don't allow them to. That's correct. Which you're going to talk about. Sure. Or as we go over Congress. So what's up with Congress? What do they do? What's it about? We have the 116th Congress who has just descended upon D.C. and they're going to be tackling a lot of foreign policy issues. And so, Ryan, help us just walk through some basics. First is, what are the major committees that oversee foreign policy issues? Yeah, so I would say on the House side, you have, of course, I'm going to speak, House Armed Services um, is a major committee. You have the House Foreign Affairs Committee. It's another important one. And then HIPSI, which is the Intel Committee, the Select Committee on Intelligence. They pretty much handle our our intelligence functions. And then you also have the Committee on Homeland Security also plays in the national security space. So those are probably your top committees. Okay. And of course, you're- I'm on the House Armed Services. You're on the House Armed Services Committee. And there are different, there are more or less mirror committees on the Senate side, right? So the Senate also has similar- Right, right. So I'll I'll explain the Senate piece. Sorry. Oh, and I just remembered. HIPSI is the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Got it. So on the Senate side, you have the Senate Armed Services Committee. You have the SFRC, which is the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. 
you have CISI, which is the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. And then you have pretty much the Government Affairs Committee that does the DHS piece of it. Okay. Senate Government Affairs Committee. Okay. <laughs> All right, Brian. This is why you're on the show. I believe so. Because <laughs> most of us don't know any of this. <laughs> so the interesting piece is you have a lot of – all those committees have different equities that represent the national security policy, whether it's the intel piece, the Department of Defense, Department of State. Let's also not forget USAID, which falls under – Foreign relations. Right. And, and that's um, the wing where we do our foreign assistance, where we give out money to, right. to others. Yep. So that's like the aid arm of mm-hmm. our foreign affairs approach. And then you have the intelligence committees, which fall under HIPSI and CISI. So that's, you know, CIA, DIA, those types of organizations. Okay. That's a lot. It's mm-hmm. a lot of acronyms. It is. We need people like you in the world because <laughs> I would get lost. So who are the leaders of like, let's start with, because there's a lot. We won't go through all of them. But the main ones, as you mentioned, there's yours, the Armed Services Committee, which oversees our military and theirs. On the House side, the House Committee on Foreign Relations. Mm-hmm. Yes. I would say every chairman of their committee is a respective leader. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, if you look at it from a budgetary perspective. The Defense Department spends a lot of money. So I think last year's budget was $674 billion. So you get a lot of interest from an industry perspective. There's a lot of civilians, a lot of military personnel involved in that. So there's just a larger pot when it comes to some of this defense work. I'm not saying it's more important than another committee. I would say, obviously, diplomacy is extremely important towards our national security approach. So you have the State Department. I think their budget last year was around $57 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have ambassadors across the globe. You have embassies across the globe. And they're obviously extremely important as well. So the heads of SFRC, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, as well as the House Foreign Affairs Committee are apparently playing an extremely important role. They even passed a State Department reauthorization bill, I think, two years ago, I believe. Mm-hmm. So. They're right in line with what Hask and Sask are doing. And then the HIPSI and SISI equities are also extremely important. The intel side of our national security is extremely important. So right. that helps us understand our threat, figure out where we should invest in the long term. Okay. And then also, like I said, USAID falls under SFRC and Foreign Affairs Committee. And then lastly, the DHS piece is extremely important yes. as we think about you know our airports, our ports of entry, right. think about TSA, yep, yep. think about our intelligence sharing agreements that we have with other countries. Sometimes Mm -hmm. that's not just the intel side. It's also DHS has some equities there. Right. And what would you say are sort of the primary responsibilities across all of those committees? How would you put their responsibilities into buckets primarily when it comes to managing foreign affairs and all of that? I also forgot another thing. Yeah. Um, We also can't forget the appropriation side. Oh, yeah. For each authorization committee, which is like Senate Armed Services Committee, House Armed Services, House Foreign Affairs, Senate Armed, Senate, Foreign Relations Committee, there is a appropriations committee associated with that. So the, tell us what appropriations, tell us who they're, what sure. they do, because they're kind of important. <laughs> um, and then I'll come back to your other question yeah. about your previous question. Yeah. So the appropriations side is that's where those committees are pretty much draw the budget numbers. They write the bar- budget numbers based off what the president bu- president's budget is submitted. So once the president submits his budget, the authorizers go through the budget to figure out which programs to keep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the appropriators are there to actually write the bill that contains the actual funds. Okay. Can we use an example? Like maybe like a household? Sure. So let's say every week that you would sit down and meet with your spouse and you guys would have an actual plan for what you want to spend the money on. You know, create a joint budget that you agree on. Um, That would be the authorizers. And you and your spouse would agree or not agree to buy a new car or should we spend money on X, Y, and Z? Go to Jamaica for right. vacation. Right. And then that becomes like a signed agreement. That's the authorizers. And the Got appropriators it. are the people who say, okay, here's your check. You know, here's the money for your car. Got it. Or you wanted to go to Jamaica, but now that we realize Jamaica is not a good place for you to go, we're not going to give you money for that because uh, you should go to the Bahamas instead because you get better value. <laughs> right, right, so right. So the appropriators have the actual funds. And the appropriators are on the Hill or are they at like the Treasury? They're on the Hill. They're on the Hill. That's correct. Okay, that's a powerful job. Maybe I should have an appropriator on the show. You should. Talk about how the money really, no. That's true. You should. <laughs> so the responsibilities. So overall, what are the responsibilities of all of these entities? For the authorizers, so HASC, SASC, HFRC, SFRC, your job is to have oversight of your respective department. So Mm -hmm. from an armed services committee perspective, so House Armed Services, we do oversight of DOD. DOD being the Department Department of Defense. Defense. Mm -hmm. So, and then the Foreign Affairs Committees have Department of State and USAID. And DHS, Department of Homeland Security Committee, or Committee on Homeland Security, has DHS. Gotcha. So everyone has their respective federal agencies that they do oversight of. Got it. And so your job is to, from an authorizer, scour through the DOD budget, figure out which things are good or bad, mm-hmm. hold the administration accountable mm-hmm. for any sort of swings in policy that's trying to make that's going to affect 
the federal employees writ large yeah. within your respective department. And that's part of your main job, as well as work with the administration to kind of think about the long term. The great thing about the Department of Defense, and I think a lot of the other respective agencies have this as well, is you know we have a future years defense program. So that's the five-year budget plan. Okay. Find up is what they call it. Pretty much, you know, we think five years out. Where's our long-term investment going to be? Should we, should we invest in the program now? Should we invest later? Where should we make our strategic investments to make sure that we can keep this country safe? And I think that's the common mission that links all of these mm. national security committees together is mm-hmm. how do we keep our country safe within our respective lanes, so to speak. What are the mechanisms of determining the priority? Because you could have a president come in who's like, the priority is, say, cyber. Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to just revamp our entire cybersecurity, everything. But Congress, maybe f- for whatever reason, is like, you know, the priority should actually be diplomacy or trade. Let's mm-hmm. say trade. How does Congress know how to posture itself or like what the priorities are when it's going through the budget and what role? Well, we'll start with that and then we'll talk about the agencies. Sure. I mean, the foreign affairs and defense piece of it is an interesting world because the president has a lot of kind of autonomy to set the national security and foreign policy agenda. But one of the the best things that I think our forefathers did was they created one of the most powerful Congress in the entire world. Because in order for the president to do anything, as we've seen, he has to have the approval and rubber stamp of Congress, whether that's the legal authority to do so or the funding to do so. So the great part is any president can say, hey, I want to go out and do X, Y, and Z. I really want to pivot to East Asia, so to speak. But he has to define what the pivot would look like. This is just an example. He has to drill down on the facts. He needs to have people in his administration who can articulate his vision. And then he has to make that case to Congress. And all along the way, build relationships with members, House members, senators, key staff, to be able to not only give his budget proposal, but then have it enacted via law. So that's the authorization and as well as the appropriations side. So if he can't make a very persuasive fact-based case that members on both sides of the aisle, as well as both chambers are amenable to, then he's going to have a tough time accomplishing his overall legislative goals. Yeah. So. Yeah. We won't talk about instances like that right now. But I love that explanation because I think it sort of reminds us of the checks and balances that were created for this system. And what isn't actually, in my opinion, the beauty of our democracy. It's not perfect by any means. But to your point, the forefathers put together a plan. Well, at least an idea that said, you know, hey, we don't want any one person right. to be able to just willy nilly do whatever. The forefathers were sick of, um, you know, a monarchy. And yeah. <laughs> that, that type of system. Yeah. So they created a governing is supposed to be difficult in a democracy. Mm-hmm. One of my professors in graduate school had a great quote where he said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's supposed to be tough. You're supposed to make relationships. Mm. I think if you go back and look at like President Bill Clinton, people called him the explainer in chief. You know, like he was able to talk to people and really drill down and figure out what they wanted and work with them to kind of build a collective decision around decision and build a group around certain ideas. Yeah. So if you can communicate effectively, build relationships across the aisle. Right. Work with Congress. Right. That'll make your life a lot easier as an executive. But there's also another element here, which is the public. Right. Right. Because it's not just influencing the elected officials who are representing the people as well. Right. So it's also convincing the public that you're your stance, your position, your strategy, whatever it is, is ultimately going to keep America safe and secure. And so in terms of Congress, to what degree is the public involved in like how much leeway does the public have in sort of shaping, you know, some of the priorities of Congress? Yeah, I mean, so I think on the on the House side, the public, you get every two years members are up for election. Mm -hmm. So members have to keep a very close pulse on their district. They have to be able to communicate with them. And every vote matters, as we see in some of these races that came out in November where the margin for victory was so close. You know, some people say, oh, well, if I vote, it won't make a difference. No, some people won by like 200 votes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So voters have the ability to choose their leaders and then leaders get to advocate on their behalf in Washington to kind of choose which respective policy they think will work best. So. Americans have a stake in foreign policy. Yeah. Every time you go to that ballot box. Say it again. Say it again. Americans have a stake (laughs) in foreign policy. Every time you go to that ballot box and you vote for someone, you are putting someone in Washington who support or doesn't support X, Y, and Z idea. This has always been the struggle with me and the show. But part of the reason why I do it is to help people understand, like to see the relevance in their life. And so from your perspective, given your history and career working on the Hill, have you seen just really great examples of the public, when it comes to particular foreign policy issues, you don't have to get super detailed, but have there been instances where 
members of the public have said, you know, we don't like what America is doing blank or here or there. And it's sort of swayed Congress as a whole or turned the tide on a particular issue. On foreign affairs and defense. That's a good question. Or even just throughout history, maybe not during your time. There are so many issues that have been famous. Like I think about like the Vietnam War, for example. Yeah, I would say the Vietnam War, you know, just the kind of those types of protests going on across the country really started to play into the the national security debate that was occurring yeah. in Washington, D.C. That's a good example, I would say. The most visible one that I think that's non-national security related was kind of the healthcare debate where you saw mm-hmm. a lot of people kind of, I think you've seen a difference in public opinion. You've seen people who really didn't like it, who were vocal in Washington, D.C. during that time. But then eventually it became popular once they understood what it actually did mm-hmm. over the long term. And mm-hmm. you've seen kind of a pivot in public opinion towards yeah. acceptance of it. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah, for sure. Once you have 17 or 14 million people who didn't have, have health insurance. insurance, now they have it. Yeah, it's kind of hard to dispute. Yeah, it's kind of undo. Yeah, so. yeah. And I think with foreign policy, what makes it difficult, too, is because the issues are like healthcare impacts us directly. Like it's something that like we as regular humans here in the United States, we see front and center. Mm-hmm. Foreign policy is one of those things, you know, it's like, well, you know, Myanmar is kind of far right. <laughs> or, you know, Venezuela is kind of far or China is kind of far. You know, it's not an immediate issue. Yeah. Right. That comes to mind. But I think people will complain about foreign policy, but not know that they're complaining about it, right? Mm. Like, so if you think about like, mm. oh, why are my gas prices so high? Ah, right. Yeah. So what's going on in the Middle East? Why are my gas prices so high? Mm. That's like you're actually talking about what's going on from like a government to government perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why are we in Kuwait? Why are we in this country? You know, what does that relationship entail? And the American public will start to pay a little bit more attention once it, I think it Hits affects their, their bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. Not and saying that they weren't paying attention before, but they will pay more attention. Once it's the, they can yeah, it's the it. direct, yeah, you feel it. You right. can immediately see it in your bank account, as you said. And the good thing is, I, you know, as you mentioned, the Vietnam War, people have the ability to petition their elected officials to raise awareness. And you also see it maybe from like a tourism perspective. I think mm. Cuba under the Obama administration, right? So people are like, well, I want to go, you know. All of a sudden, it's on Instagram. I want to go visit Cuba. <laughs> you know, why can't we go here now? Yeah, you know, yeah. I think once people realize some of these things are real, they want to kind of get involved. Yeah, and They yeah, want to yeah. learn a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or if you think about disasters, I think about disasters, you know, like I think there was a tsunami in East Asia. You know, people want to get involved and figure out ways they can help. Or Thailand, where the kids were stuck in caves and oh. Elon Musk wanted to get involved, right? There's an international affairs element there. People start to get interested. Like, why can't we get these people out there in caves? From our perspective, like we have a lot of technology. We have the Navy SEALs, you know, we have special operations forces across all our services. Why can't someone get these people out? And I think that's when people start to pay a little bit more attention when they yeah, think about yeah. tourism, a natural disaster, yeah. an issue, my bottom line. That's when all of a sudden you care a little bit more about foreign affairs and yeah, what's going yeah, on yeah, in yeah. that domain. For sure. So, for sure. As well as risk, right? So people think about risk in terms of, okay, well, what is Russia doing in Georgia? What does that mean? Why does that matter to me? Mm, you know, mm-hmm. what's going on in Syria? Was this yeah. good or bad? Someone explain this to me. Should I care about this? You know? <laughs> or, yeah. or even Russian elections. Like, did they really tamper with our elections? What is our posture towards Russia? Mm. So mm-hmm. I think when you see those types of images, it raises a question for the American right, public. Right, 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 right. As a friend, when I first launched the show, she sent me a message. She's, you know, I've always wanted to know what the heck does Russia want with us? Like, why are they mm-hmm. so mad at us? Yeah. It's like, well, do you know about the Cold War? Yeah, go back and reread history. <laughs> go you know? back and reread history, so, right? So, so you're or read right. It for the first time. Or, yeah. or, or, right. Or remember, right? You mm-hmm. know, just, I think we learned about these things. We just, for whatever reason, didn't pay attention. But back to Congress. So, what would you say are some important legislation that has helped to shape foreign policy and how Congress operates and interacts. I mean, there are lots and lots of long legislative history when it comes to foreign policy in Congress. But in your opinion, like what are one or two that really have helped to shape the role of Congress when it comes to foreign policy? I'm going to be a little biased here. And I would say the National Defense Authorization Act, which is uh, legislation that the House Armed Services and Senate Armed Services committees put together every year that gets signed into law at least for the last 58 years. Okay. Tell us so what it's about. a long piece of legislation now that re-regulates DOD mm. and kind of, like I said before, kind of authorizes certain programs and can kind of do everything from civilian personnel policy where it tells the government or tells DOD how it can hire its citizens to become federal civilians to cyber. So setting up a new cyber command um, like Cybercom or how to address certain national security threats. So you can reorganize the structure of DOD. 
you can work on how our military will interact with another military mm-hmm. or how our military can give aid to another military. So I think over the long or the way we do security assistance and training. So meaning how we train other right. armies, other other countries, or other armies, countries, armies, yeah, or how we do foreign military sales, which is we have the ability to sell some of our older equipment to other countries to help push be more in line with our national security viewpoints from a regional perspective. So I would say over time, the bill's getting a little bit bigger every year, which some people don't necessarily like. But every year, you get the chance to continue incrementally shape our our foreign policy. I mean, I would even go back to the National Security Act of 1947, yeah. which kind of that started, what is it, the U.S. Air Force? Absolutely. Changed the Department of War to what the Pentagon is and kind of started those steps in motion Yeah, currently. Didn't it also create uh, the National Security Council? That's correct. I'm not so, sure how much experience you have with that, but can you tell us just a little bit about everybody here is the National Security Advisor, the National Security Advisor, but it's like, does anybody actually know what the National Security Advisor and the National Security Council actually does? Yeah. So, I mean, in, in theory, <laughs> depending on each respective administration, but in theory, the way it should work is the National Security Council is responsible for working the interagency part of the international security implementation for the president's agenda. Uh, The way it kind of works is the president can handpick his folks that are national security experts to come in and help push his agenda via all those federal agencies. So whether that's CIA, DIA, DOD, DHS, USAID, sorry. Those are the people who are supposed to be strategic thinkers, think about the next four years and what they actually want to accomplish from a foreign policy and defense perspective, who work directly for the president in the EEOB, which is the executive office of the president, to push his agenda. So mm-hmm. they're the interagency piece, the big thinkers in the White House and in the executive branch who work all across the federal agencies to accomplish the national security goals. So mm-hmm. the, that was a pretty strategic and big move to kind of set up the current national security apparatus that yeah. a lot of us work in now. And 47 was a big year just in terms of foreign policy. Right. You know, there's yeah. a lot going on. Yeah, you can think about the Marshall Plan too, right? Yep. So that pretty much set us up to set Europe up to get back on its feet post-World War II because mm-hmm. we didn't want to repeat what happened in World War I, which was the Treaty of Versailles, which led to a vicious cycle of reparations and countries not being able to get back on their feet, which kind of helped us spiral into World War II. So I think those are important pieces, important parts of history. I mean, going back, what, 70, 80 years, yeah. whatever it is, <laughs> yeah. that kind of put us where we are today. Yeah. The reason why I like these discussions is because it gives us just like context. It's a historical context. Mm-hmm. It's often lost when we hear about things that happen on the Hill or yeah. things that happen even with the executive branch. It's like, well, you know, there this comes from someplace. Right. These things just didn't like come out of nowhere. Right. Like there are actual decades and decades and decades long legislation that have given power to Congress to just be able to do certain things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's all rooted in something. It's all rooted in something. <laughs> Which is <laughs> good. Yeah. And then that even brings back the point of how important the legislative branch is, because as you think about these laws, laws are written on the Hill. They're not written by the president. Mm. He can submit whatever he wants, kind of similar to his budget. He can send a legislative proposal over. But at the end of the day, it has to be marked up by whichever respective committee has jurisdiction and pass the House and Senate conference, which means the Senate and the House have to get together, negotiate on provisions, and then sent to his desk. So it's in the president's interest to make a bunch of friends with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle in the House and Senate and key staff to be able to get things done the way that he wants it to be. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why democracy and I think relationship building is so important for the executive branch. They yeah. got to be you're in a power seat. Yes. But you got to be collaborative. Right. It's a, effective. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. plus, you know, the thing with the executive branch is they leave at some right. point. Right. And so hopefully what they leave behind is something that the Congress that's going to be staying there sometimes for a long time. You have individuals who've been in Congress forever, but hopefully they leave behind something that is good for the American people right. like long term. And I think some of the most effective leaders that you see like to collaborate and like to make friends and like to talk to people. I, I worked in the Obama administration as well on the Hill and some of the best senior leaders were the ones who would just pick up the phone and call people, mm. you know, and stay on the phone with them and talk to them or take their calls. Take their calls. When they come in. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or use whatever situation it was, to build relationships. Mm. I think about in politics, you always want to just be checking in with people whether you need something or not because mm. you don't want to be asking for something on the first meeting. Right. right? So, it's kind of like dating. Yeah, yeah. I, would say that. I mean, it would be kind of weird if some random guy like just texted me, 
Yeah. W-I-D. Yeah. No, or like, hey, we're going to we're going, going to, to Paris tomorrow. We're going to Paris. I was like, but I haven't heard from you in like yeah. a month. No, I need to borrow a hundred bucks. Wait, I haven't met you yet. I haven't met you. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> or you only call me when you're feeling some <laughs> yeah, kind of way. We just met. We you just, just met. met. Hold just on met. a minute. Yeah. Hold on a minute. It's courting. Right. So now that Congress has switched over, you know, the Democrats are in the majority on the House side. What does that mean for folks like you? Like, what does that mean for the Armed Services Committee now that sort of the power has switched over to the Dems? Depending on which committee you're on, at least on our committee, um, now we have a Democratic chairman. Okay. So the Democrats are in, get all the gavels so they can set the agenda for each mm-hmm. respective national security committee. They get more staff. So our committee has a lot more Democratic professional staff appointed to the committee to work on a behalf. So it sounds like a job opportunity if anybody's listening and wants to get over to the Hill. <laughs> the Hill is hiring. So you, you see a lot more Democratic staff kind of on the Hill. The good thing about the Armed Services Committees is that we work in a bipartisan way. So we work across the aisle and some it's a lot less partisan than other committees. Mm. And we didn't get a chance to talk about that a little bit because I think a lot of people like I didn't even know until I got to D.C. that there was a difference between working for an elected official, mm-hmm. right, say like Jack Reed in this case, my senators, if you're a staff working for him versus a staff member working on an actual committee that Jack Reed is a member of. Right. So what you've done both. like, So you've worked for a senator. Yes. And now you work on committee. What's the difference between the two? So good question. I've worked for a House and senator, a House mm-hmm. member of Congress and a senator. On the Senate side, I was working directly for Senator Schumer, and that was One of my focuses was New York, but there was also national security writ large. So not only did I have to worry about what's happening in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, I also had to worry about what's happening at Fort Drum, which is located in upstate New York. Mm. Worry about um, all the DOD issues that are occurring within the state of New York to help Mm -hmm. him with his national profile. Mm -hmm. So you get a little bit more of the and you also have to work directly on constituent services. So anyone who's a veteran who needs help, you know, that's from the state of New York, from the state of New York, you have to work. You have to make sure those issues are attended to. Industry that's trying to do business with DOD, you know, you need to make sure that they're not having a tough time and that the department's being responsive to them. You get a statewide issue, you get the state issue, and you also get the national issue as mm-hmm. well. Um, being on the committee, now it's, I was appointed to the committee by Congressman Adam Smith from Washington State. And now my job pretty much requires me to work and assist all the, the members on the House Armed Services Committee and only think nationally as mm-hmm. opposed to just. For New York or for New York the state of Washington. X, yeah. Y, and Z state. Yeah. So you get more of a national mm. viewpoint on things as well as a global viewpoint on things. Because mm. once you take a little bit of the state aspect away and the district aspect away, you have a little bit more time to kind of delve deeper into issues mm-hmm. and think about things more globally and try mm-hmm. and set a national profile for the chairman. For the chairman, right. And the chairman is, of course, because it's switched over to the Dems, the chairman is obviously a Democrat in this case. Mm-hmm. And so you, but you work with the Republicans yeah. on your committee Absolutely. as well, which right, because takes probably a lot of emotional intelligence, right? Because they're going to have different views, you right. know, whereas if you're working just in the state of New York, they're all Democrats, you know, the lane, you know how, they, but if you're doing both, you kind of have to build those relationships and all of that. Like Absolutely. You talk, yeah. I think um, you learn to work across the aisle. And the good thing about DOD is a lot of the issues are, are fact-based. You know, if you take like a program, for example, like if you think about the F-35, we're building how many? And how far behind schedule is it and at what cost, right? Those things are facts. Yeah. Right? So when we look <laughs> yeah. at them, we're like, this program is not in good shape. You know, not yeah, saying yeah. That, not talking No, about no, that. but yeah, gotcha. But X, yeah. Y, and Z program is not in good shape. We both can agree on that, right? Yeah. It needs more money here, right? Yes. Like, there are a lot more issues that are bipartisan. And right. And a lot more Black things. and white, it sounds yeah. like. Right. So yeah. there's certain things to get political, but there are a lot of issues that you both can agree on that are like, look, we got to fix this from a from yeah, X, yeah, Y, yeah. and Z perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you can kind of build a collective unity around. But it gives you kind of that, a lot of people that work for DOD want to be a SME, right? So that's subject matter expertise is what mm-hmm. people call it. So it gives you the time and flexibility to dig into these issues and mm-hmm. really learn it and become a subject matter expert on some of them. Yeah. Whereas working in a professional or personal office sometimes, well, you're required to just know everything about New York. Right. You know, and you right. got to be able to know, right. become right. more of a journalist. Right, right. This gives you the flexibility to kind of dig in on like five or six issues. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Makes sense. It makes sense. So I want to make sure we wrap up here and hopefully people who are listening through Brian's stories or through Brian's career can sort of see the various like avenues, not just professionally, but just the various ways that foreign policy just gets done in this country. 
my takeaways that I really love about your background is one is about relationships. Like it matters. I think just generally in life, that's the case, but particularly in the political space, when you're dealing with personalities Mm -hmm. and agendas and money, Mm -hmm. lots and lots and lots of money. And you're not only dealing with it in the United States, but you're also having to contend with outside pressures, right? And outside influence or just people from the outside of the country who want the United States to do a particular thing. You have to be really skilled at navigating that. And so my takeaway is, you know, I would never mess with anybody who's ever worked on the Hill because (laughs) y'all know some things, (laughs) but you're skilled. You've got to be a really skilled people person um, Mm -hmm. to be able to get things done. The other thing I really liked about you, Brian, and, and about what you shared with us is you talked about the National Defense Authorization Act. Mm-hmm. That is a great example, as we talked about, of history and the importance of just understanding how we got to where we are. So when people look at how much we spend on defense, it didn't just come out of the air like all the hundreds of billions of dollars that we spend. It comes from a long, long history of people grappling with really tough issues that many of us don't see Mm -hmm. as, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on what it is, we don't see all the threats. Mm -hmm. We don't see all of the things that come across the desk of folks like you or even the president. So hearing you talk about that act and the importance of history is really, it resonates with me as we particularly look around the world and we see just a lot of really horrible things. Everything is rooted, as you said. Everything yeah. comes from something. And I think it's important for the American public to understand that like, you have people in Congress that understand where you're coming from and are fighting for your respective issues. You know, now that Democrats have the House, you're going to see more of a Democratic agenda and a Democratic approach, at least on the House side, towards national security. Mm-hmm. You know, and there are people who are thinking about this long term and thinking about the financial piece and thinking about the strategic implications of our acts and how we in our maybe impartial interventions in different countries and how that relates. And then what are we actually doing here? What's our security profile like? What's our military to military relationship like? How does it relate to our previous history? So you have people who are trying to digest those issues and understand Mm -hmm. and learn more about it every day Mm -hmm. to kind of make sure that our senior leaders and our elected officials make the right decisions, make the right decisions, smart, strategic decisions. And a lot of times the U.S. Congress is where it starts. Yeah, definitely from a funding perspective and as well as from an authorization perspective. Yeah. Also, I think what's great about working for Congress is at some point you get to a point where you you just don't worry about what's happening in your state. Right. Right. You have to remember the 50 states or even the territories. Right. And their well-being. And all those states are vastly different. And I think that happens. That occurs normally at the more senior you get. Some people call it parochial. I will say it's like more constituent based decisions become a, not less important, but you have to take more of a strategic long term national security or national viewpoint on some of these issues. Mm-hmm. You know, even think about leadership. You know, Senator Schumer now is the Democratic leader for the U.S. Senate. He's got to think about the whole country. Right. Nancy Pelosi has to think about the whole caucus. Think about all the Democrats from all different parts of the, the right. world. As you move up in your defense career or whatever, your respective uh, federal agency or whether it's your committee post or you go from, you know, I care about X, Y, and Z lab in X, Y, and Z state too. Now I got all the labs across the uh. nation. As each respective member of Congress gets more senior, their responsibilities increase, as well as the staff that they have increases in knowledge to be able to understand the national profile the national versus the small Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the objective of this show, was to hopefully give people a, a better understanding of that nuance, that it's not easy, right? It's not easy, but it's fun. And it's, <laughs> it's fun, Brian? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> learn to speak Latin, learn to learn the hill. Yeah. <laughs> come to D.C. for a day. Maybe we, we should just start a program where regular people could just come to the hill and like work on the hill for a day. And, yeah. And, have a day in Brian's shoes. <laughs> wow. I don't, know what I, I don't know if they want that. but <laughs> Shadow Brian around, around the hill for a day and see all the stuff he's got to deal with. Well, this is our time. It is It has been a great conversation. Uh, we will continue to talk about the role of Congress in a more nuanced way um, as we look at particular examples of issues happening around the world. You can listen to this show on WERA.FM, as I mentioned. You can go to whatintheworldpodcast.com where we've got all the other previous episodes. And we're also on SoundCloud and whatever podcast platform that you listen to on your mobile device or on your laptop. And you can also follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the whole bit (laughs) as What in the World um, pod or W-I-T-W pod. So 
Thank you all for listening. And Brian, uh, what we usually do on this show, because a lot of this stuff can be very intense and emotional. And mm-hmm. I try to, you know, land this plane nicely and end on a positive note by asking our guests a song that keeps them in a good mood. And I'm going to ask you. So, Brian, on your days on the hill, when, you know, the, the papers are stacked high, and you've got a lot of re- memo writing to do, a lot of briefings. Uh, and the world is in a tailspin. What is a song that grounds you, that keeps you focused and in a good mood? I would say uh, So What by Miles Davis and John Coltrane. I think that song really brings together two amazing jazz artists that we hopefully we don't ever forget. And it's just kind of like one of those like miracle pieces, right? So you have Miles Davis, who's like the birth of the cool, just playing just enough notes, not too many notes to kind of fit. To He's no longer in like, I got to play as many notes as I can per measure. And then you have John Coltrane, who's like, just as cool playing as alto sax so i think that's something that kind of keeps me going especially yeah. in the middle part of the song so yeah 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 awesome. more than you wanted to know but no it's great that's like my favorite parts of this segment about this show is is the music and hearing everybody's like fascination with every song that keeps them in a good mood so there you have it ladies and gentlemen enjoy uh, this wonderful tune a so up by miles davis and john coltrane and thank you all for listening and stay tuned for more of what in the world Thank you.